Blind Spots. It's our title for this morning as we think about David and Absalom. I think I know what my blind spot is. When Tim phones up and said, will you be able to speak on the Sunday morning? And I said, yes. <laughs> but uh, here we are thinking about blind spots. Blind spots, well, if you drive a car, you'll know what a blind spot is. It's that moment when you're driving your car and you look up in the mirror and there's no one behind you. And you look in the mirror at the side of the car and there's no one there. And you go to pull out and realise actually there is someone there in the blind spot that you can't see. A friend of mine was driving up the M1 not long ago in the middle lane, minding his own business. And there was a large articulated lorry on the inside lane. A foreign lorry. And as he was driving along, he was in the blind spot of the lorry. The lorry pulled out. It just caught the back of his car, whipped him round, and the next thing he knew was he was being pushed along in the middle lane of the motorway sideways. Blind spots are dangerous things. And when we look at Absalom, we see blind spots, or a particular blind spot in Absalom's family, relating particularly to Absalom. And blind spots have serious consequences. In uh, the case of David, with his blind spot for Absalom, and his, it affects his family. And there's some terrible things that happen. Rape, murder, rebellion. It affects the nation. As there's a, almost a division, as, there's, as uh, Absalom, in the reading, I don't know if you notice, he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Instead of following David, there were those who followed Absalom. It affects David. David is a broken man as he flees out of Jerusalem from Absalom. And even for a moment, it it almost affects God's redemptive plan. Because in that line of David... Eventually we come to Christ. But it it hangs in the balance, as it were, as David has to flee from Jerusalem with Solomon, his son. And what we're going to do in our time together this morning is firstly look at Absalom and just think about some of his actions. And then take a look at David and David's deficiencies and, and what caused, what was the root cause of the blind spot that he has? And then we're going to look briefly at where that leads us, and it leads us to the cross of Christ, where all scripture ultimately leads us. So, Absalom, David, and Christ. Absalom was a a son that David loved, and uh, as you read through the, the passages about him, you see that David loved his son, Absalom. Outwardly, he was charismatic and uh, good-looking. It says in chapter 14 and verse 25, there wasn't a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance in all of Israel. Absalom was the sort of person who would have been on the front cover of the celebrity magazines. And I don't know if you noticed, uh, uh, know about Absalom as well, but he was known for his long hair. Now, I cut my hair when it gets too long. That's not very often, you might think, looking at me. But he cut his hair when it became too heavy. And uh, 200 shekels, when it got to 200 shekels, that was when he cut it. It's about two and a half kilograms. Imagine walking around with two bags of sugar on your head. 
For me, it would be more like two crisps. <laughs> For looking at, looking at one or two of you, it's not even that. But, uh, but outwardly, charismatic, good-looking. But inwardly, Absalom was self-centered, rebellious, and revengeful. When Absalom first appears on the scene in chapter 13, uh, we read about his half-brother, Amnon. And Amnon falls in love with Absalom's sister, Tamar, who's described as uh, 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 is, is beautif- Absalom, um, uh, Absalom's beautiful sister. Amnon falls in love with her and eventually, tragically, rapes her. Two years pass by. And then there's another tragedy in the family. This time it's Absalom. And Absalom has been harbouring in his heart towards Amnon over what he's done, eventually murders him. How tragic. And then he runs. He flees to Gesher up in the north. But David, his father and the king, does nothing about it. He has this blind spot towards him. Maybe because of what had happened with Bathsheba and uh, Uriah that we were thinking about last night. But he has this, this blind spot moment and does nothing about it. Absalom flees to Gesher. For three years he lives there with his grandfather, Talmi. And then eventually, a little bit later on, David longs to see Absalom, this son who is lo- he loves. And Joab, David's nephew, hears about this, becomes aware of this, and he schemes and he plots and uh, goes to David with this devious plan and uh, persuades David to accept Absalom back into Jerusalem. And David agrees. Maybe David thinks this is an opportunity for reconciliation. But again, it's a blind spot moment. As David doesn't deal with what Absalom has done and, and accepts it back. It's a facade from Absalom trying to get his way back into Jerusalem. But then David says, well, Absalom's not allowed to see me. I, don't, I won't see him. He's not allowed to see me. Two years later, two years, another two years pass by and Absalom calls for Joab, demanding to see the king. And he says, he says, if I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. That's a bold statement that Absalom makes, isn't it? Uh, he says to Joab, um, if I'm guilty of anything, let David, uh, my father, put me to death. Absalom was guilty, wasn't he? But when you read what David did, it simply says the king kissed Absalom. Absalom was guilty and David had this blind spot moment and did nothing about it. And then we come to chapter 15 and uh, Absalom begins his campaign to overthrow David. He wants to become the king. And at the beginning of the chapter, he makes himself look like royalty. It tells us, verse 1 of chapter 15, in the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. When anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from? He would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Israel would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper. But there is no representative of the king to hear you. And then Absalom would add, 
If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that he gets justice. Absalom is is trying to set himself up as the king. And Absalom's making sure that before people get to the king, that they get to him. And it tells us in the next few verses that he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. This goes on for a number of years. And uh, there's no mention of David in this time. But eventually, he comes to David. He comes to his father. And he says this in verse 7. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur and Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. Again, David has this blind spot moment. He doesn't see what's going on. And what does David say to him? Go in peace. He's being fooled by what Absalom is doing. And then in the following verses, it says that when, uh, well, Absalom says, you know, when you hear the trumpet sound, say that Absalom is king in Hebron. And verse 12, it tells us, that the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. David was so blind to what Absalom had done and he didn't deal with it. He was so blind to what Absalom was doing, trying to overthrow him as king. It's a dark moment, isn't it, in the history of Israel. Tensions are rising. The rebellion is growing. And then we come to these verses 13 and 14 when a messenger comes to David and says, the hearts of men of Israel are with Absalom. And David says to his officials, come, we must flee. What a tragic moment that the king is preparing to flee from his son. David, fleeing for his life. His family's in a mess, rape, a murder, There's division amongst the people, some following Absalom, some following David. The kingdom's about to be overthrown. Where will it all end? Where will it all lead? How has this happened? What's gone wrong? How is it that David could be so blind to Absalom's sin and Absalom's rebellion? Well, I want us to look now for a moment at David and think about his deficiencies. David was a great king. He was a man after God's own heart. Arguably Israel's greatest king. But he wasn't perfect, was he? And we've thought about that in some of the talks over the weekend. And tragically last night with his sin with Bathsheba and all that went on there. But as well with Absalom and this blind spot that he has Absalom. Why is it he has this blind spot? And what I want us to do is to look into David and go back into his past even before the Bathsheba incidents and see where this has come from. And I think, uh, well I've got two reasons here as to why he had this blind spot and why all this happened. And uh, they're very simple but I think they're warnings to us as well. You see, firstly David was disobedient 
to the word of God. He was disobedient to specific commands that God had given him. David was king. And uh, as the king of Israel, he would have been familiar with God's law. And in fact, when we read God's law, when we go back into the book of Deuteronomy, we read that there were specific commands given, not just to the people, but to the king, long before Israel ever had a king. And it says this, if you turn back into Deuteronomy 17, if you want to have a look at it, specific instruction given to the king, or given concerning the king and to the king. Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 14. This is what it says. When you enter the land of the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it and you say, let us set a king over like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. Now it's interesting, Saul was the people's choice. David was God's choice. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. And then there's this clear instruction given to the king. The king, moreover, must not acquire a great number of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. Israel's dependence was not to be in their army, but it was to be in the Lord. And then it goes on. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. And he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and of gold. Three specific commands, specifically for the king, concerning the army, concerning his wives, and concerning his wealth. Now, if you know anything of the kings of Israel, you'll know that David's son was Solomon, and Solomon clearly flouted all three of those. And if you read in 1 Kings 10 and 11, you can see he clearly disobeyed what God had told him to do. But David was not perfect. He made mistakes too, and particularly in this area relating to wives. Disobedient to specific commands of God. And the verses that were read from 2 Samuel chapter 3 tell us that David had six sons by six different wives. And I would imagine that the Spirit of God was saying to David when he took that second one, David, you're wrong. Don't do it. And then when he took the third one, David, you're wrong. Don't do it. And the fourth one, David, it is wrong. Don't do it. But he did. And not only that, uh, Absalom's mother, Maarca, was a foreigner as well. She was from Gesher in the north. And, uh, well, the marriage was a political marriage. And uh, he, was, he was using his wives to try and make peace with the surrounding nations. David was disobedient to specific commands that were given to him to do with his wives and to do with where they were from. Now, David would have known God's word. He wasn't only to have read it, wasn't only to read it, but there was a specific command given to the king in verse 18, back in Deuteronomy uh, 17. Um, 
When he takes the throne of the king, his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. Now imagine having to do that, to write it out. Imagine arriving on your beach mission team at the beginning of the week and say, well, before we begin, we just want you to write out all this child protection policy. We just want you to write out all these rules and instructions. We just... You would get the message, wouldn't you, if you were having to write through all of that. And David would have written out God's law and written down these instructions concerning these wives. But yet, he disobeyed what God had specifically commanded him. And before we move on, I'd have to ask this question this morning. Are you being disobedient to the word of God? Are you disobeying what... God has clearly commanded. Are you not doing what God says you should do? Are you doing what God says you should not do? I think our problem with the Bible is not the parts of the Bible that we don't understand. It's the parts of the Bible that we do understand. And the problem we have is trying to obey God's word. And I think each one of us here faces one of two dangers. It could be a number of dangers, but uh, I think... Two dangers that we face here this morning. And uh, the first of them is this. Not taking God's word seriously. Are you serious about the word of God? Do you long to know what God's word says? Dawson Trotman, who was hearing about, loved to learn the scriptures. Brian, who was up here yesterday, who travelled down with me from Loughborough, uh, he couldn't sleep last night and he said, well, I... I, I went through the scriptures that uh, he learns the scriptures. He said, I got all the way through Psalm 119 and then I've been all the way through Galatians. But meditating on God's word because he loves the word of God and wants to obey it. What's your attitude to the word of God this morning? What place does it have in your heart? The king was told to read it all the days of his life. And that's good and right, isn't it? And that's what we should do. Read it each of the days of our life. And he was told to follow carefully all the words of this law and all these decrees. Not just to read it, but to follow it carefully and obey it. Maybe over this weekend, as we've listened to the different talks, we've faced many challenges, haven't we, from the word of God. But what are you going to do with those? Are you going to take them to your heart? Are you going to seek to obey them with God's help? Are you serious about the word of God? I think that's the first danger, not taking God's word seriously. And I think the second danger that we can face here is emphasising knowing the word of God above obeying the word of God. We can know all about it. We can debate its doctrines. We can have great Bible knowledge. We can have our opinions on what this means, on that, what that means. But let's be careful lest that become a substitute for simple, clear obedience to the Word of God. It was John Stott's funeral uh, down at uh, All Souls in Langham Place recently. And down there, Chris Wright spoke uh, at his funeral and spoke on his two favourite verses. The first of them was Galatians 6, 14, about the cross of Christ. And the second of John Stott's favourite verses was John 14, 21. Whoever has my words and obeys them, he it is that loves me. 
you love God? Do you obey God and his word? Obedience, it's what God requires of us and obedience is is where the blessing is. I think it's interesting when you look at Psalm 19, part of it is about the word of God. God speaks through his word and uh, a number of things about the word of God. And at the end of it, and David wrote this, it says this, by them, the statutes and so on of the word of God, by them is your servant warned and in keeping them there is great reward. David didn't heed the warnings, did he? And was disobedient to the word of God. But not only was David disobedient to the word of God, he was naive about the consequences of sin. Absalom's mother was Maaka. She was a foreigner from Geshur. It was a political marriage, as we've already said. And David thought, well, he'd be able to make peace in the land by making these allegiances and these alliances with the nations around. But he was wrong. He married Maacar. And what did they call their son? Absalom. Do you know what Absalom means? Father of peace. How ironic. It's as if David was naive to the consequences of the sin and thinking, everything will be all right now. Peace will come to the land. Thinking that he could restore the peace which the sword had broken by this this political marriage and calling this son Absalom, father of peace, everything will be all right. But naive to the consequences of sin. And here he is, David, these years later, facing the consequences because of the fallouts between the, the sons from different wives. This family conflict leading to these tragic occurrences within his family. Facing the consequences of his sin those years ago. And again, before we move on, are you naive over the consequences of sin? Maybe you're a youngster here this morning and think, do I really have to obey what my parents say? Maybe a teenager, do I really have to obey them? Does it really matter? Don't be naive over the consequences of sin. Maybe you're a husband or a father and you think you can be harsh towards your wife and children and get away with it. Don't be naive about the consequences of sin. Do you think you can look at things on the television, on the internet, without becoming addicted and enslaved? Don't be naive about the consequences of sin. Do you think you can go after the things of this world and live for the pleasures of this world without them trapping and controlling you? Don't be naive about the consequences of sin. Are you playing with sin? Thinking, oh, it's harmless. It's all right. It's just a bit of fun. Are you tolerating it when you know that you shouldn't? Are you cutting corners that aren't meant to be cut? It may seem a small thing that David did all those years ago. But this father of peace becomes a cause of such grief for him. And here he is facing the consequences of his disobedience to God and his naivety over sin. He's a broken man. 
He has a small group of followers. He's saying, come, we must flee. As he heads out of Jerusalem, there's much weeping. And he goes to the east of Jerusalem. He goes down through the Valley Kidron. And as he goes, there's much weeping. The people are weeping. In verse 23, uh, we didn't read it, but in verse 23 it says, The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on towards the desert. Great weeping. And then in verse 30, we find David weeping. David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went. How tragic. David, weeping because he is no longer able to lead his people, but I think weeping as well over the consequences of his sin. Now, he is a forgiven man. Psalm 51 tells us that. He is forgiven, but he has to live with the consequences of his sin. And we have to do that, don't we? And I think that one of the things that the consequences of our sin does is it keeps us humble before God and just reminds us of our total dependence upon him. But as David crosses that brook and heads to the Mount of Olives, surely that leads us to another king, doesn't it? Another king who crossed over that brook as he was going to pray. Another king who was a weeping king. Not because of his sin, for he had none. But wrestling with the thought of bearing our sin and bearing David's sin and bearing all sin as he went to the cross at Calvary. Not weeping because his kingdom was broken, but weeping in submission to his father as he goes to the cross to break the power of another kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, and the kingdom of Satan. You see, ultimately, it leads us to Christ, doesn't it, and his cross. The place where we can confess our sin and find and enjoy the forgiveness of God. The place where we can be set free from the power of sin over our lives. The place where we can know and experience the grace of God day by day. So when that final day of judgment does come, we can know that we're safe. We're going to sing about the cross and about the grace of God in a moment. But just as we finish, where does this story end? Well, you'll have to read it to find out. Go home and read what happens in the following chapters. Read the details and see what happens. But eventually David returns and he's back in Jerusalem, and the kingdom is safe. But Absalom tragically dies, and David is grieved over the death of his son. At the end of chapter 18, it says, the king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway, and he wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. You see, as a father, David loved Absalom. As a king, David's responsibility was to judge 
Absalom. David had this conflict, didn't he? On the one hand, he loved his son. But on the other hand, he was to judge his son. And he had this conflict which he could never resolve. Because only God can do that. And it ultimately leads us to the cross of Christ. Where the justice of God meets the love of God. Where we can know justice is satisfied because Christ dies in our place. And we can know the love of God is satisfied because he dies for us. Only God can do that. And we rejoice, don't we, in the cross of Christ where our sin was dealt with so that we might be free from the guilt of sin and the power of sin over us.